0: trends? Well welcome to Glad9fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need to know information on deals, documentation, ESG and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high yield, leveraged loans and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cager smith so be sure to check in every Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today, when we'll be looking at the state of the aviation sector, the clean energy transition, and interpretations of the available amount concept. Next up, we have the Covenant close-up. Today with me, I have Brian Deering, one of our senior Covenant analysts. Thanks for being with us today, Brian.
1: Thanks for having me on, Cat.
0: And Alice Hollion, a legal analyst. Thank you so much for being with us today, Alice. Thanks
2: for
0: having me too. Um, So today they're going to be talking about the available amount and apparently there's um, three different interpretations of it. So there's um, a lot to get through here. But uh, Brian, if you want to kick us off, why do we find this one interesting?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, so we'll go through broadly how it works, but I think um, what's, what's interesting about it is that it's a relatively new feature in the bond space and so we only saw it in roughly half a dozen deals last year all in what would probably be considered a little bit looser sponsor type deals and um, it was in loans before and it's sort of creeping over and I think we want to talk about it because it's open to interpretation and there are some parts that are ambiguous and so it's definitely something that people should be aware of and start paying attention to maybe which interpretation applies and um, what that might mean for their transaction?
2: Yeah, so it essentially permits the issuer to make uncapped restricted payments or investments or both at leverage levels that are so sort of higher than those that would otherwise apply. So, so as long as those payments are funded from sources that make up the available amounts, so. Essentially, it's, it's more restricted payments capacity and more permitted investments capacity. And that's just sort of generally in line with the loosening of, of documentation overall.
1: Yeah. So typically within the restricted payments component of what Alice mentioned, it sits in the leverage test. So typically you'll have a leverage test that says if you're below that leverage, you can make uncapped restricted payments. This is adding a few additional layers to that. So that if you are over that level, but perhaps you're below a second higher level, you can use cash plus 50% of the available amount. Or if you're at an even higher leverage, you can continue to make uncapped restricted payments as long as it's 100% with this available amount. And the other part is that typically you can use this available amount to repay subordinated debt
2: yeah exactly so one of the key issues to consider is the, the scope of the available amount and how that's interpreted. so the available amount builds from a number of components, many of which overlap with the components of the RP uh, restricted payments builder basket um, but notably issuers is haven't given up that traditional um, restricted payments builder basket rather they've included both concepts and you know given themselves the the broadest flexibility. Um, as, as possible. So the available amount can sort of be funded directly or indirectly by components such as overfunding, cash and cash equivalents, IPO proceeds, or more ambiguously retained cash. It refers to the, the sweep mechanism in loans. So, so specifically, any excess cash flow that's not required to be applied in prepayment under that sweep provision. Um, but the, the problem is, you know, the definition can be a lot broader than this, and it's not necessarily defined in the OM itself, but in the SFA. So it will it could potentially be material to the bondholders, but they don't necessarily have sight of that, unfortunately. But I guess, you know, what's most, most controversial about the available amount is the inclusion of permitted debt as one of its components, and the drafting can actually be quite ambiguous. Um, It leaves scope for differing interpretations as to how they operate, but that, I think, you know, even on the most conservative and bondholder-friendly read, the flexibility is quite staggering. Um, And we believe that there's sort of three potential readings here. Um, And Brian, do you want to start us off on, like, the first one or two?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So fundamentally, what we're talking about... um, as Alice said, is there a bunch of capota parts that make up the available amount, one of which is permitted debt. So it says if you have permitted debt capacity, uh, you can convert that into restricted payments. So the question is, is that trying to say that you can convert um, debt that you have just issued into a restricted payment? So you kind of are, you know, y- its use of proceeds immediately is connected to the issuance of debt and making perhaps dividend or something. Um, and that would be what we kind of call the funded with interpretation, which is probably the tightest interpretation um, that we've come across. And, the, and then I think the second one is what I'm going to call the build up interpretation. And that's one which if you incur debt, um, it sort of builds up the available amount, um, but it doesn't need to be used, that debt doesn't necessarily need to be used directly for that uh restricted payment at any point in time that sort of builds up. And then at any point in the future, you've got this built up basket, kind of like your your typical CNI builder in restricted payments. You've got this built up basket that you can then use at, at some point to make a restricted payment. And um, this is probably the interpretation that is uh, most common in the market. We've spoken to a, a handful of partners um, at some of the major law firms, and they've got differing views. And I think Uh, The first interpretation is not one that we've really come across, um, but it's certainly plausible. And the second one is one that we've come across um, frequently. But there is a third interpretation.
2: This reading is even more flexible, so they can use the capacity that's available for debt as restricted payments capacity. So this suggests, unlike the first two readings, that they don't actually have to incur that debt first. And, and again, market participants have posited this reading, but we we do think there are a few or any sort of one major flaw with, with this argument, the fact that if you were to use that debt capacity as RP capacity, you'd want that corresponding debt capacity to reduce if it hasn't been incurred, except there is no corresponding reduction clause, if you like, which um, attached to this, this available amount definition, um, which I guess, if we could say, it sort of pushes us towards the first two readings um, originally.
1: The available RP capacity, which is another concept we're not talking about here, but that one typically in the language will explicitly say that it reduces its corresponding basket, um, et cetera. So, yeah, I think these are the three interpretations we've come across. And I think certainly um, some are more plausible than others and certainly some are more aggressive. Um, I think the the last thing I would say is um, it's just really important to understand uh, if there's any possibility for double counting. You could imagine in the component parts for the um, available amount, you know, there are cash components, there are IPO proceed components, and um, something to consider there is that also probably builds your your standard uh, restricted payments builder basket, and so you wouldn't you wouldn't expect that it would uh, it would build um, both, as in IPO proceeds, allow you to build up your RP builder baskets, um, and then also you have sometimes uh, the ability to take the IPO proceeds and, you know, and uh, incur debt, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, you know, through the available amount definition, but you wouldn't expect to be able to turn $1 into $2 <laughs> typically. So you just language to be careful of. So, I, you know, I think overall, we're just trying to say that this is a, you know, an interesting concept to start seeing in high yield bonds. And, you know, the idea is to convert debt to restricted payments. And there's a question about whether or not that makes sense necessarily, and whether it's something that you know we you know we we think that an issuer really needs. Um, and you could see how in you know in a distress scenario, a restructuring scenario, there's certainly a little bit more room for um, interpretation, and there's maybe a little bit more room for um, dare I say abuse of this, uh, given that there are so many ambiguous components to it and in different interpretations. And I think what this really does is. Um, Obviously, it's providing additional flexibility to an issuer, um, which is fine, but it also sort of muddles calculations for investors when they're trying to understand how much debt capacity is there, how much restricted payments capacity is there. Um, And potentially, these are a little bit higher than people might have um, imagined. It's just important to keep in mind that this is referring to using and converting the available amount when you're over a leverage threshold. So we're already in a position where leverage is increasing um, and going higher and higher, and then we're allowing someone to continue to uh, make restricted payments or you know, dividend cash out of the group, etc. So I think this is uh, this is a, a new and, and sort of interesting topic in the bond space, and certainly something that, given in the ambiguous aspects of it, is worth um, investors asking questions to understand how the company's thinking about it, what how they might interpret it, and how they might use this going forward, so that can be factored in, you know, investment decisions and um, and so forth.
0: Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our segment on ESG. And today with me, I have Jack David, our ESG analyst. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this today.
3: Thanks, Kat. Thanks for having me.
0: So we're going to be talking about the clean energy transition today, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. So um, with a bit of uh, room with no new issuance uh, for a while now, we've uh, been looking at uh, the the clean energy transition and how current global events have, have affected this. Um, so, so something that that's obviously come into focus lately is, um, the increase in fossil fuel prices. Uh, so, you know, for a range of factors, there's been a lack of investment in fossil fuels, um, the last couple of years or so, uh, and, the the fallout from, from the pandemic, as long with, um, you know, other recent, recent events, such as the, the Ukraine crisis have really pushed this price up. Um, so in an, in an ideal world. Uh, renewable energy would, would be able to to solve this problem. Uh, and of course, we, we could just rely on zero carbon energy and has low environmental impact. It's worth not losing sight of this goal. Uh, the industry could certainly benefit from better investment and channeling a lot of the funding from government and from investors into this space is, is still a key priority um, and should be for, for climate conscious investors. Having said this, renewable energy alone cannot yet provide baseload energy we need. This being a consistent source of energy uh for when there's no sun and no wind. So there's there's an open conversation now around how to provide this base load in the interim. Uh initially this this was leaning more towards towards natural gas. For example, with the green the EU's green taxonomy, which is the EU's categorization system for sustainable economic activities, uh, this came under fire at the beginning of the year. Uh, for proposing that natural gas and nuclear power were to be added to it, despite objections from NGOs, investors, uh, member states, and even its own expert group. How did this come about? Uh, so, I mean, according to news sources, France, who's invested heavily in nuclear, was unhappy with the fact that nuclear had been excluded. Um, this is because the taxonomy that takes a renewable energy cannot have any long-term negative effects on the environment, for example, nuclear waste. So following this, France pulled together with Germany and some other Eastern European countries uh, that would benefit from natural gas and um, proposed to the the European Commission that they should allow both fuel types into the taxonomy.
0: So why is this so controversial?
3: Well, I mean, now we have a situation where there's a fossil fuel that is considered green under the EU's taxonomy. Um, And on top of this, some pretty been some big changes to the underlying science that taxonomy is based on. Uh, this being that the they changed the amount of CO two that's allowed to be emitted per kilowatt of energy for that energy to be classified as green, and increased that amount amount of CO two um, in order to to la- allow natural gas to be to be included, which obviously has a higher um, uh, CO two um, per per kilowatt of energy. Well, up until now, Europe, as mentioned, Europe's been leaning towards the somewhat clean natural gas to act as the transition fuel and provide the baseload energy uh, we need in place of coal and other fossil fuels. Uh, Germany had Nord Stream 2 in the making, and now with gas and the taxonomy, it seemed to be the case that the natural gas would fill in this gap. Um, however, now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's, of course, this scramble for Europe to be independent of Russian Russian fossil fuels and Russian gas, um, which has pushed nuclear back at the agenda. Uh, so Germany, you know, after after Fukushima incident, um, especially was historically against nuclear. Uh, it, they were initially uh, forced to reconsider decommissioning of some of their plants, uh, and, and Belgium has actually done so. They pushed back the deadline of, of decommissioning some of their some of their nuclear plants. Uh, the UK, and interest, interestingly, the US have both um, come forth and, and said that they'll be um, investing more heavily in, in nuclear um and um, and the the UK wants to up this this mix of 25% of the overall energy energy use in, in the UK
0: next up we have our deep discussion which today is going to be on the aviation sector with me i have loans reporter Laura Thompson thanks very much for being with us today thank you for having me And you are our resident aviation expert, that's right, you used to work in the field?
4: Yeah, I was an aviation finance analyst for some years in my past life and uh, the world of uh, distress is actually very much overlapped with the world of aviation.
0: So why do we find this sector interesting right now?
4: So we're interested in this field because it's uniquely exposed to this conflict, which is obviously having wide ramifications throughout the sector. And we've seen that play out with um, euro-denominated airline bonds falling disproportionate to the wider market sell-off over the month. Um, The kind of headline here surrounds um, all the foreign-owned aircraft which are currently trapped in Russia. About 500 aircraft to the tune of about 10 billion current market value um, are currently stuck in the country with very little hope of being recovered, and that'll have ramifications for leasing companies and airlines um, and manufacturers across um, high yield.
0: So which lessers are most affected by this?
4: In terms of sheer numbers, obviously the big guys, the air caps of the world, are the most affected, but ultimately their exposure to Russia makes up a kind of single-digit percentage of fleet value. So for air cap, that's around 5%. So, not really a huge concern. And, and as the time of recording, air caps, um, tons are remain above par. They're very uh, well isolated as IG issues from this. Instead, there's going to be niche leasing companies like Olympic Aviation and Atex, which are 100% exposed to either Russia or Ukraine, or maybe more personally for ourselves in our sector. Um, Irish firm Voyager Aviation has about 40% exposure to Russian carriers by book value, uh, including two new cargo, 7478s, which are each around 300 million current market value. Uh, This is a company that already restructured in May 2021, however, so it did push its maturities out, which is obviously a positive here. Um, There's also some ABS structures with over 20% um, exposure to Russian carriers from people like Carlisle and Castle Lake. Um, So those are the kind of names that people would want to be thinking about when they think about leasing companies
0: that are most impacted. And for that aircraft that's stuck in Russia or Ukraine, uh, what happens to that? Well, the big
4: question really is the condition that they are in. The suspicion is that Russian uh, airlines will continue to use Western jets, but domestically this is what Russian, the Russian government has advised, and it's what um, my source is saying you can see on some uh, data providers. Uh, but whether they continue to operate them or whether they're placed in storage, that does mean wear on the aircraft, and that means parts replacements. Uh, this is actually a pretty big issue. Documentation of spare parts and of maintenance is really important to um, aircraft values. Um, without it, without that documentation, lessers could find it impossible to remarket those aircraft, even if they do recover them from Russia, because it forms such a crucial safety requirement for any aircraft that you can trace the history of all its parts and of all its maintenance for obvious safety reasons. So we are looking at a situation for some of these aircraft where the values could be heavily impacted, even if they are recovered. Um, and exacerbating that issue um Russia cannot accept any spare parts into its country due to sanctions, which means it could end up cannibalizing the aircraft that it has um for spare parts and it's likely to target Western jets first for this rather than domestically manufactured jets so so say my my aircraft leasing
0: sources so the prospects of this aircraft stuck in this region um are not looking promising. is that fair to say
4: yeah definitely and you know, they're stuck there not only from from sanctions and um, from both sides and from Russia pushing to re-register those aircraft as uh, as Russian, which is which contrary to international law. It's what my sources describe as state-sanctioned piracy. Um, repossession is an outsourced practice in aircraft leasing. So you're not going to find repossession companies that are willing to send their employees into dangerous situations to recover these assets even if there was a legal means to do so. And how are the airlines being affected by this? So the biggest thing for airlines broadly is going to be the fuel costs which is an airline's biggest expense and is at a 14-year high at the moment. Um, How much they can pass this on to customers across the board That's a challenge, really. It's a notoriously competitive industry since the introduction of low-cost carriers, the the Ryanair to the world. And this is where you might see some smaller carriers fall over. Um, What exacerbates this is the closure of Russian and essential closure of Ukrainian airspace, Russia being the largest airspace um, in the world. Um, An example of this um, is FinAIR which has focused on connecting Europe and Asia in recent years, so is very vulnerable to these restrictions and is anticipating around an extra three hours of flight time on its services to China, to South Korea, to Japan. And that will mean a big expense. Some sources are trying to say that because um, airspace rights in Russia are disproportionately expensive, that will offset fuel costs but most people think that actually that's a bit of spin because fuel is so expensive and is, is such a huge issue to airlines. Some airlines will have hedged well against this. But what my sources are saying is that a lot of airlines got hedging very wrong in 2020 with the pandemic and overpaid and stepped back from that. And so are now in a bad position um, because they're not hedged now as much as they might have been pre-pandemic. Uh, other airline names people might want to keep in mind include Wizz Air, which is a Hungarian ultra-low-cost carrier whose focus is Central and Eastern Europe. So Ukraine the surrounding countries make up a really significant portion of their route network. And it's also got some A320s, which are stuck in Ukraine, and there will be little hope of them being recovered um, anytime soon and potentially they could be destroyed. Um, but both of these names are very strong names, and my sources are very positive on both of them. Again, it's a small carrier, you'd think of, in terms of bankruptcy. But there will be a, a real
0: impact even on these strong names. So with regard to lease payments, if an airline has aircraft stuck in this region, uh, what recourse do they have uh, with leasing payments? Broadly none. the industry standard
4: is for hell or high water clauses in lease contracts. So even in uh, previous unprecedented events, which you know, aviation's had many in the past few years, um airlines have continued to pay. In the case of the Boeing 77 Max grounding, those planes were made illegal to fly and airlines still had to pay. Um attempts were made to argue force majeure and things like that, but they were largely unsuccessful. And and airlines tried to recoup losses through through Boeing instead of the lessors. really. Individual um agreements might have been worked out, but it was not the the norm. Um in COVID, there was more Flexibility because it was a, a complete and total shutdown of the industry. Um, even then, airlines kept paying leases, but they were paying often at reduced rates, or on a power by the hour basis, or they were paying um, on a deferred basis. But they were they were still paying. Um, this was a step down for for lessors. In some cases, a significant step down for lessors. But again. There is not much wiggle room expected um, in this case because it's not um, as widespread and it's not a question of bankruptcy for most carriers um, if they have aircraft that they can't access or they have routes which are currently going to be much more expensive to, to operate than they were a few months ago. So the ex- expectation would be hello, high water, keep
0: paying. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud9fin. Many thanks to Brian, Alice, Jack and Laura, and of course to you too, listener. Tune in for the US edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.